And now, podcasting from a two-person hot tub high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK, Rick, and their highly paid intern, Malort. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Friday, January 14th, 2022, and we're still talking about COVID. And my guests today are my good friends, Pamela Dunley, the president and CEO of Elmhurst Memorial Hospital, and Dr. Michelle Mazir, the president of the hospital's medical staff. Welcome, ladies. Thank you so much. And I'm looking outside right now, and it's kind of gloomy looking. I've been really spoiled. We've, I think we've all been spoiled. Even though it's been cold, it's been sunny, which helps so much. But today is more, it's not so as cold, but kind of a gloomy looking day. So I hope that doesn't bode uh, for the weekend that it's going to be gloomy because we all like the sunshine, whether it's cold or not. Well, so far the winter hasn't been too terrible as it relates to weather. But when we spoke <laughs> last on December 28th, uh, we were all a little freaked out about what was happening with COVID. And I, from what I've seen and heard, it hasn't gotten any better. So can you give us an update on what you're seeing? Absolutely. And we had a right to be freaked out because the last, since we talked on the 28th, it has been uh, like going up a roller coaster. It's been extremely, extremely difficult, large numbers of patients. So I'll give you all the numbers. Um, when we talked last, we had 73 inpatients with COVID, seven were on vents, and five. And we were waiting for five results. Today, we have 89 patients um, in the hospital with COVID, six are on vents, and we're waiting six results. Um, but that 89, we were up in the 90s, and I can tell you uh, Edward Hospital has been as high as 123 in the hospital at one time with COVID. So the numbers have been very, very high. Um, deaths have also gone up. So for a long time, we had very little deaths. Last time we talked, we had 218 total deaths. Now we have 238 total deaths. So in that time period, we have had 20 more deaths. Um, current uh, patients in the hospital, uh, in terms of vaccination and non-vaccination, last time it was 60 unvaccinated, 13 vaccinated for a total of 73. Right now it's 55 non-vaccinated and 34 vaccinated. Um, but the non-vaccinated are the ones that are in the ICU. Uh, DuPage County went from 137,000 to 173,000 uh, COVID patients, and their deaths went from 2.08 million to 2.56 million in DuPage County. So that's a huge jump for DuPage County. State deaths went from um, that wasn't that wasn't deaths, right? That was just number of cases. State totals. Oh, state totals. That wasn't deaths. Sorry. Okay. State deaths went from thirty thousand seven hundred and forty-seven to thirty-two thousand three hundred and fifty-six. So that's where the big jump in deaths was. And uh, COVID discharges. So we like the good the good information. Uh, we went from two thousand three hundred five discharges to 2,572 discharges. And for our consistency since the beginning, the recovery rate is 97%. I did notice one day uh, sometime in the last week that it, within a 24-hour period, 
there were five deaths. And, and that kind of puts it in perspective how serious this still is. And, and that may actually have been a daily high for Elmer's hospital. I don't, I don't know whether it was or not, but it's, it's very serious still, isn't it? It is. And it was our highest reported death count in a 24 hour period during this entire two year pandemic. So those that say, uh, we don't need to worry because it's just Omicron. They uh, they really need to pay a little bit more attention to what's really going on. Um, is it fair to say that most of the COVID deaths are, I know there's comorbidities, but is it fair to say those people would still be alive if it hadn't been for COVID, most of them? Or are there a significant number of folks that are dying from other things and they're chalked up to COVID deaths? No, I think, Rich, I think that when we chalk it up to a COVID death, it truly is a COVID death. And I guess one of the things I would say, for example, we all know um, friends and family with maybe um, lung problems. So they have asthma, they have emphysema, they have COPD, and they're plugging along with their chronic illness doing fine, but then they get COVID and die. So yes, they were more at risk because they had that chronic illness, but it's truly the chronic illness plus the COVID that that is the problem. Okay. Um, at one point in the last 72 hours, Pfizer's CEO came out with a pretty scary quote, and I'm not going to read it. I looked it up, and I would encourage folks to look it up. But it, it basically, he, he says he's not sure that the first two doses provide much protection at all. And he uses the word, if any. And then he talks about the booster and says it appears that it, it likely protects you from death and maybe hospitalization, um, not so much against infection. I mean, it was kind of a scary quote that their CEO gave. So my question to you, uh, it's a few questions, but one is, does it appear that Moderna and Johnson and Johnson are kind of in the same boat and they may not be that effective if there's not a booster? You know what? I would, I would like to rephrase it to make it less Scary. I think that what we realize is that over time, your immunity wanes even after you get that initial two-dose series. And so that's why we introduced boosters. And initially, the boosters were six months after your second dose. And now all across the board, they well, for Pfizer and Moderna, they've shortened it to five months. And for Johnson & Johnson, it remains at two months. So I think um, the message here is everybody needs a booster. And to, to bring that home, here, here's kind of what we're seeing in the world right now. Unvaccinated people, no vaccines at all, are dying in our ICUs, um, really some of them regardless of their comorbidities. Or age. or age. So young people who should not die from a virus did not get vaccinated, they are dying. Um, vaccinated people are still getting infection, and if they are older age and have comorbidities, they're still ending up in the hospital, but by and large, they're not, they're not dying. Vaccinated and boosted people are getting a cold that is irritating and frustrating because it's a cold that also comes with a quarantine. Okay. So boosters, the, the message for everybody right now is to get out there and get your booster. So, and, and really the key word is, is death or to avoid death is the key phrase. Because um, I had a follow-up, which I'm not going to ask now that you, you clarified that. But one, one other quick follow-up is, is, do you think the government's going to start considering people that are eligible for boosters and are not boosted as unvaccinated? 
I do think that at some point in the future, we're going to have a different definition of fully vaccinated. And I think it's going to be the two-dose series plus whatever they determine as the booster interval. So I, I think that's probably coming our way. I know that uh, Elmhurst Hospital does not test for a particular variant, um, but are you assuming that most of the the recent deaths are Omicron or are they likely Delta still? No, we think that across the United States that mostly what we're seeing right now is the Omicron variant. And, and if somebody does pass away from COVID, um, does the morgue or the hospital or anybody test to see what variant they had or is it too late? Is that irrelevant? So we have a very close relationship with the Department of Public Health and they will request, um, you know, there are certain parameters that they will request specimens um, from patients, and then they can do the sequencing to determine which variant um, the patient had. So we do do that, um, not regularly, but we do do it. Okay. There's been a lot in the news the last few weeks about the ineffectiveness, or at least to some degree, of um, cloth masks. So my question is, is there a type of mask other than these high-end KN95s that people should be wearing that might be a little bit more effective than typical cloth mask, for instance, these these little light blue ones that, that we've seen in the hospitals for years, um, do they provide a little bit more protection likely than a cloth mask? You're likely going to get a little more protection from what, what we call an isolation mask in the hospital or a surgical mask. But really the key is a well-fitting mask. So if you have a cloth mask that's well-fitting, and there's no gaps on the side, there's no gaps above the bridge of your nose, and then you switch to one of these blue masks that has gaps all over it, you have not done yourself any favors. So really the key is a well-fitting mask. And the other thing we have to consider is some masks, some people cannot tolerate certain types of masks. Those KN95s are, they're, they're great, they fit well, but for some people, that could be rough to stay in for long periods of time. So I think two things. It has to fit well, and the person wearing it has to tolerate it, or or then we end up with mask noncompliance, which is not helping anybody. And was the medical profession using these KN95s for routine surgeries or only in certain cases before COVID? Oh, before COVID, we were using them much less frequently for just a subset of kind of communicable diseases. But now we're, you know, we're moving to a place where we are moving because the um, this variant is so transmissible, we're actually using them more now than we ever have. But I think he asked, what do they use in surgery? Because they always mask in surgery. Oh, in, so in surgery, you know, right now it really depends on the um, patient that is presenting for surgery. So everybody gets tested before surgery and then they they will not be operated on unless it's emergent if they had a, a positive test. And then they're screened to make sure that the day that they show up, they have no symptoms. So we have ample protective equipment for all of our staff, and they really tailor it depending on the exact situation. Okay. Can you give me an idea of what therapeutics are currently being used and and maybe uh if, let us know if some of those are newer or have most of them been used for quite a while? And then what are the supplies of those therapeutics? Are you able to get what you need, what you want? Yeah, so I think there's two different arenas. There is 
um, the outpatient ambulatory arena, and then there there are inpatient inpatient um, therapeutics. We have we have what we need to take care of people. Um, we have an excellent clinical decisions team that comes together regularly if something new is introduced and make sure that we're using it appropriately and that we have supplies. The recent change has been in the monoclonal antibodies. What we found is that as Omicron um, became the prominent variant, our old monoclonal antibody infusions were not effective against Omicron. So just this week, we um, have received citrovimab which is the monoclonal antibody that is effective against um, Omicron. The, the infusions are allocated by the state. So we request a certain amount and then we, we get, you know, what we can get based on what the state actually gets. So right now we have it. We don't have, a, you know, unending supply that we would like to have. Um, and we are offering that in our emergency departments if a patient is appropriate for it and in our immediate care centers um, for appropriate patients. And as it relates to monoclonal antibodies and, and this, new, this new one that seems to be more effective on the Omicron variant, um, I remember that it was important that folks get those early on um, in the disease. And so, you know, a typical person you know, may in the evening not feel so well and say, I'm going to go get tested tomorrow. And it seems like a lot of test results aren't coming back for several days. Is it too late if it's been three, four or five days that, you know, for those monoclonal antibodies to actually be helpful? The ideal time frame to give them in is five days. So I guess my message to the public on this would be um, don't ignore your symptoms. We see a lot of people that say, oh, you know, it, it's just my allergies. It's just a cold. This can't be COVID. But those actually are COVID symptoms. So I, I would just encourage people, especially people who, are, who have high-risk medical problems, who are immunocompromised and unvaccinated, if they get any symptoms, they need to be seen as quickly as possible because we have these therapeutics. But you are correct. They need to be given in the appropriate time frame to be effective. So the last time we spoke on December 28th, Dr. Mazir, you kind of gave us a rundown on the new isolation uh, and quarantine rules that the CDC had just released probably in the last 48 hours at that point. Uh, are there any changes to those since then, or are they still pretty much in place? Because I don't want you to have to go through that again. No, I think just in general, I, I think it's actually a little bit easier now. Um, general public and schools, if after five days of symptoms, they can return on day six. I think the thing that gets confusing for everybody is day zero is your onset of symptoms. So the first day you're sick actually counts as zero. Then you count five. Then on six, you can be out in the public. But I think the thing to remember is for the next five days, you're still required to have strict masking. So to me, what, what I tell my patients is strict masking means that if you are in the presence of another person, your mask does not leave your face. It doesn't leave your face for a drink of water, a drink of coffee, those things you do in your office by yourself. And I think a lot of the confusion among folks is uh, is day zero, and you, you, you clarified it, but is day zero the onset of symptoms or when you get a positive test, because some people aren't getting a test maybe for three days, and then they get the results on day five, and then they think, well, geez, I was still positive on day three. Is that day zero? But it's not. It's the onset of symptoms, correct? Just to onset clarify. Of onset of symptoms is day zero. 
And, you know, we do find some people positive um, just through people will come after an exposure or they want to travel and they will be positive. So if you're asymptomatic and you test positive, then we take the date of the test as day zero. Can, uh, can one of you give me an approximate number of employees at the hospital that are COVID positive right now? Because I know last time we talked, there were quite a few compared to during most of the pandemic, just like in the general population. You know, I, I can't give you an exact number. It's such a fluid situation, especially with the um, return after on day six now. But I can tell you this, we had some pretty alarming um, positivity rates, really 80% positive. We get a report every day of how many tests we did and how many patients were positive. And today we've seen that number drop drastically. So today our positivity rate is 40 or in the 40s. Um, so that's much better than it has been over the last week. And she's talking about employees. Employees, yep. And and these are, for the most part, vaccinated. the The bulk of our the bulk of our employees are vaccinated. So these are vaccinated and some boosted um, employees that are still getting it. And again, not getting critically ill, but getting a cold and having to stay home for six days. And are the are at least the numbers significant enough that it's causing a little bit of strain? So I will answer that one. Every day we are trying to figure out how we're going to staff this organization. We have closed some areas so that we could move staff permanently to more of our, our essential high-risk areas. So when we think about where we have to stay open, we're talking about our emergency departments, our, our immediate cares, our inpatient hospital. Um, our, our vaccine clinics and our testing sites and our employee health area. So other areas that we know are important, but we don't absolutely have to keep open. We have shut down some, we have uh, shrunk some so that we could relieve staff so they can be in these other really um, high, higher risk areas. So for example, Cardiac rehab right now is shut down. We have moved the cardiac rehab staff into some other areas where they can help out. Um, many of our walk-in clinics have shut down so we can keep our immediate cares and our emergency departments going and our employee health line working to keep our staff getting back to work quickly and safely. So yes, it's, it is a day-by-day, hour-by-hour strain on the organization and the employees. I can tell you um, the employees want to work. They, you know, and the other the ones that are here are doing a, a fabulous job of, of making sure that they are keeping patients safe and that they are supporting each other. But it is, it is extremely difficult because if we've gone, we're now in wave, whatever, three, four, I don't know what you want to call it. Uh, this one is the worst of all of them, and it's the worst in volume, and it's the worst in impact on our employees. And so even when we didn't have a vaccine, we didn't have as many employees out at one time, and, and, and we didn't have the same number of sick people in the hospital. The ones, it was scarier then because we didn't know what we were doing, and, and, and people were dying very frequently then. Now we know what we're doing, and we and people are still dying, but they're the, the, the unvaccinated ones. But it is impacting 
the public much more and it is impacting our employees much more. You know, we, we felt very bad when we had to change our visiting hours, but we, we did it because the uh, transmission rate to our to everybody was so rapid and so, um, you know, easy for our employees or, or our patients even to get sick from visitors that we wanted to keep people safe. But um, I'm hoping that we're peaking and that within the next couple of weeks, we'll start seeing a downward trend. That's kind of my hope prediction going on. But, you know, I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. Um, but it's been a really, really difficult time. I know just a minute ago, Dr. Mazir addressed the CDC guidelines as it relates to isolating. And, you know, day six, you can you can go back around other people as long as you mask and, and, um, and social distance as much as you can. Does that same do those same rules apply to healthcare workers? Because there were some rumors that there were some government agencies trying to shorten up that five day um, isolation for healthcare workers. So the CDC has outlined um, mitigation strategies for um, healthcare facilities, and if a facility falls into truly a crisis situation, meaning we cannot operate the critical areas of our hospital because we don't have enough employees, that's when they would go to a um, stance of healthcare workers can come back sooner than we would really like. Okay, We're so, not there yet, though. Well, we are that, not there. That's good, and I hope we never get there, right? We hope that as well. So um, I know that uh, all of the uh, employees of the hospital are required to be vaccinated unless – they have an exemption of, you know, religious or health-related exemption. So are those same employees now required to get boosted when the booster is available for them, or has that not happened yet? We did not make the booster mandatory to this point. Um, we continue in all of our communication to the employees to really strongly encourage the booster, and we have plenty of booster available to them. And we're actually starting um, having our analytics team work on a project now to find out how much of our um, employee population is actually already boosted. And I would also say that those that do not have the vaccinations, um, we do test regularly on a weekly basis. And we have found occasionally people who do have COVID, so then we, they don't come to work because we can't have them here if they have COVID. And they're not showing symptoms. They're not sick. Um, but they... You know, they were not vaccinated, and we have to be able to monitor them because they're the more susceptible to being ill, and so they get tested weekly. With uh, most patients not allowed to have visitors at this point, it occurred to me that a lot of the communication from medical staff to the family happens to care partners or, you know, the care partners are the ones that maybe are feeling a little more with it and pay more attention than the person lying there in the bed. So is there ways to, to uh, mitigate that, the risk that the family's not going to get the information they need when they can't be present during, or, you know, before or after procedures? Yes, I think um, that's a really excellent point and why we like to have family with with our patients and why we like to have visitors. So for if somebody's having an outpatient procedure and let's say they are need emotional support or they're very confused, we have worked with the families around how we can 
have their support with the patient if they are quite capable of coming in and they're not, um, they don't have that issue, but they're just coming in for a procedure. Anybody who gets some type of anesthesia, we know can't remember what happens, what they're told after a procedure. So the part of the process is to have the phone number of the person who is their care partner. Hopefully that's the person that's picking them up and um, that we would call that person and give them all of the same instructions and information about what was found um, as would have happened if they were in the room with the patient. And then for inpatients, we have set up a lot of communication processes between the nurses and the family members. We've had our patient experience people um, using iPads and video chatting with family members and the patients so that we try to keep people from not feeling isolated and for families to feel like they know everything that's happening to their loved one while um, they're not able to be in the hospital. Well, that's great because uh, I'm sure that uh, a lot of those folks don't remember a thing when they've been under, just like you said. Um, can you give me a quick update on the merger? I know it's happened. It's it's behind you, so to speak, but I'm sure there's still a lot of work ahead. How is that going? <laughs> well, we're in the infancy stage, you know. We just got merged. We are. It is final. It was final on uh, January 1st, and um and we're just starting to figure out who we are together. There is a new senior executive team that is um, made up of people from uh, Edward Elmhurst and people from the Legacy North Shore Northwest Community and Swedish hospitals. Um, J.P. Gallagher is the president of the new system. They had their first combined new board meeting yesterday. Um, they've had a few senior leader meetings. Uh, we're looking at things that uh, would help the organization together, such as, uh, you know, a contracting for supplies and uh, our information systems. It'll take a while to do anything, but we are not impacting the uh, clinical staff or the physicians within the organizations. We One of the benefits of why we came together as these two health systems is so that we could stay community focused, stay, stay responsive to our immediate community and our physicians, our, our staff and our the people within the community. And I think um, as we learn from each other, we're going to see if there's things that maybe we don't do as well as as our new sister does, we would learn from that and they could learn from us on things we might do better than them. That's really our goal. But it's it's nice, you know, it's new, and it's going to take a while, just like any marriage does. And one last question, back related to staff, um, and it's, it's multi-pronged. And, you know, you said staffing is really tough right now, um, and I know a lot of that is because you've got people who are sick that, that can't come to work. But if everybody were healthy, are you, are you getting near full staffing levels, or are you still short, even with everybody healthy? So I think it's a great question, and I think it's not just healthcare, but we are an example of what's going on across all industries, I think, but we're because patients' lives are at stake here, it becomes more magnified. There's several things that happen. It's the health of people. It's people just getting totally burned out on what they've experienced for the last few years and not wanting to be in healthcare, 
and choosing to retire when they might not have. I had a nurse the other day who was going to wait a year, and she's like, she saw another young person die in ICU, and she said, that's it, I'm done, I can't do this, that could have been my son. I understand that. You know, it's, it, it, it has been a prolonged exposure to trauma, and uh, people are done. So that's another issue going on. Another one is there is a... There is this proliferation of agencies that are wooing our staff away with big, big dollars and um, people who have a lot of bills. They've got school loans, they've got, you know, home mortgages, et cetera, that they see an opportunity to get a quick payoff to pay off some big loans and stuff and, and then, um, but leave the comfort of a uh, community hospital that they've known for a long time thinking that when they're done with their contract, they'll come back, which, you know, we want them back, but it's really hard on us while they're leaving. Those dollars, the agencies aren't paying. We, the hospital ends up paying, bringing agency nurses back into the hospital because we're short-staffed. So they're still making the same money, even though they're paying these huge dollars and it's coming out of the pockets of the hospitals that have to then repay them to come back to the organization. We just lost several ICU nurses that are young to an agency contract because they're going to travel to another state. They're going, they're friends, they're going as a group, they're going to get an adventure. And we understand that as well. And once they finish their adventure, I'm sure they'll be back. But, you know, it's very, very hard in the meantime for us as an organization to afford um, staffing and define staffing. And then we are we are doing everything we can to incentivize and pay um, all kinds of premiums and bonuses, et cetera, to try to keep our staff working. But what happens is when you have limited staff and then they're doing a lot of overtime, that adds to the vicious cycle of burnout and turnover and illness. So we're all in a very, very delicate place right now. I think Elmhurst is actually in a better place than many organizations. I think if I had to be anywhere, if I was a nurse, this would be where I'd want to be. We've actually had some agency nurses that came to us through an agency contract, had worked many places, said, I love it at Elmhurst, and they left their agency to stay with us because they never want to work anywhere else. So it's just an interesting time. I hope young people go into nursing and into respiratory therapy and into physical therapy and any of the healthcare physicians we are going to need them, and I know it doesn't look glamorous right now, but it's absolutely necessary, so I still encourage people to go into the field. I know early in the pandemic, the community um, was very supportive of the folks working at the hospital, and you know that probably has kind of waned over the last year and a half. Is there anything we can be doing other than hug a healthcare worker? <laughs> hug a healthcare worker and be kind if you're going to get healthcare because people's tempers, as I've mentioned before, are still very, very short. People who are not vaccinated will be asked about their vaccination status and they get very defensive and, and because what they're experiencing is a direct result sometimes of the, their status of being unvaccinated. Please don't get mad at the doctors and staff when they ask you. They're not judging. They're just trying to figure out what the risk is to you and how they have to take care of you. And, you know, I, I wish this whole vaccine, vaccinated, unvaccinated dilemma and political strife would end because this is really about lives and saving lives and taking care of people. 
And so any way you can help people just, it's whatever you choose to do, you choose to do, and then we'll take care of you no matter what your status is. But we will have to talk about it because we need to understand what the potential risk is. Well, uh, Pam, Dr. Mazir, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. And uh, I hope the next time we talk, things are uh, improving and that, that curve is, is taking a dive in terms of folks infected. It, it looks like there's a potential for that, but uh, I know that uh, that's not a given. So thank you so much. Thank you, and thank you for your support and keeping the community informed. We truly appreciate that. Thanks, Rich. Thanks for having us. Thank you. The E-Town Lowdown brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right, nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.